Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We're going to look at verse 7. I don't think we'll get done with it tonight because there's a lot in here. But if you remember verse, um, what was it, 3 through 6 was talking about our redemption, the Father's part in our redemption. And then uh, verse 7 through 12. And if you look at some of the um, different translations, they, a lot of times they will group that as an entire paragraph. Although it's still from 3 to 14 is one sentence in the Greek. It's, they break it up in the English translations. But let me read 7 through 12. This is the message. I like how the message reads. It says... Um, Starting in verse 7, because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. I like that way they phrase that. We are abundantly free. He thought of everything, providing for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. There's just a lot in there. Let me go back and read that in the King James, or New King James, and we're going to focus in on verse 7. But this is 7 through 12 is all about Jesus' part, Jesus' role. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I love that. The word there, Greek word translated riches is, and I'm going to mispronounce it because I don't have it written here in front of me. It's plutos, I think, is how it's pronounced. But it's where we get the, the English word plutocrat, which I guess um, I guess Donald Trump would be considered a plutocrat. Bill Gates, guys with billions of dollars, I mean... I forget one time I, I read somebody did the math and um, took Bill Gates, I think his richest, when he was the richest man in the world, and put out uh, with his, you know, just from demographics, his expected age, how long he would live and how much money he would have to spend every day. And it was in the millions of dollars a day to run out of money in his lifetime and it's just you know I I just it's hard to comprehend what being a billionaire is but that's the kind of riches that God's grace has provided for us it's not in material wealth but it is in spiritual wealth and it's 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 ours and it will take all eternity for God to pour out everything he wants us to have which really gives me hope when things are tough especially when things get tough 
naturally speaking. But then he, verse 8 says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Basically, Paul lays out there everything that Jesus has done and is going to do. He uses that phrase in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, we're in that, at least the beginnings of that, because he has gathered together in one all things in Christ. There, we're going to see later on in, in Ephesians, he talks about the one new man where God has always looked, in the Old Testament, he looked at believers and unbelievers, but the believers were either Jewish or Jewish converts. And it was part of the reason that, that um, the Jews got in trouble with God was they, they started thinking of the gospel as being something exclusive to them and us and them mentality. And they quit reaching out to make converts. And God even called them to make converts. Uh, it was a little different because there was a social contract too. And God put some real barriers, in particular, uh, when you look back at the food laws. God put the food laws in, not so much that he was trying to give people a way to eat healthy, because I hear that a lot in Christian circles today. He did that more to keep the Jews from breaking bread with unbelievers because if you would go to their feast, you would get indoctrinated with their religious practices. So if you could never attend their feast, it tended to keep you separate and holy, which was more important for bringing the Messiah in than others, but they were still supposed to bring in converts. But today, God looks at the world and he sees those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. And in Christ, you can be Jew, Gentile, male, female, um, smart, not so smart, educated, not educated, sophisticated, unsophisticated, hillbilly, suburban, it doesn't matter. He just looks and says, are you in Christ? If you are, then verse 11 says, we have obtained that inheritance. Uh, it's already ours, which is great. Now, let's go back to verse 7 because I want to at least start there. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Paul returns to this theme of being in him. He, he finished up in verse 6 last time. It says, To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That means accepted in the body of Christ or in Christ himself. And then he immediately comes back to that theme, in him, in Christ we have this redemption. And that's the, that's the first theme that he says. He makes it clear right here. Our redemption is only in Christ. It has nothing to do with who you are. has nothing to do with how you were raised. Really, in some ways, has nothing to do with how you behave. 
I know a lot of people will say, well, if you're not bearing fruit, then you're probably not in Christ. Well, there's a possibility of that. But I also know, at least I know for a fact in my own life, I was talking to, um, when we went to this conference the other day, I was talking to the pastor, and I told him, I said, you know, I look at his, I've listened to some of his testimony, and I know my, my life, and he and I lived in very similar homes. His father was actually a Baptist pastor. My father was a lay pastor in the Baptist church. He didn't preach often, but he did occasionally. But he preached at home a lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot more than I ever wanted him to. But when I look at our life experiences, we were very similar with one huge exception. His father preached, by his own admission, constantly on who you were in Christ. I never heard that phrase until I was in Bible school in my 30s. No one ever talked about who you were in Christ. Every sermon I ever heard growing up was, you've got to be born again. You must be born again. They kept fishing for converts. And then if you got born again and things weren't working out real well, well, you just needed to rededicate. And so it all came down to, to you know, how hard you worked. Well, I figured out by about 17 that none of it was working for me. I couldn't. I had no victory in my life, and I gave up. I quit. Um, but I didn't realize that it was in him. And, and this is the key that I, I saw here. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He said, our Lord did not come to tell us what we have to do in order to save ourselves. He came to save us. He came to do something for us to act on our behalf. It was all him. He, he thought it, he started it, he did it all. In fact, I, as I was studying this out, I saw that the truth of the gospel, really when you come down to it, it's not that we can get saved. The truth of the gospel is that we are saved already in Christ. Our salvation is not in how we live, but do we accept or reject Christ? not salvation. Because I've heard people say, well, you need to confess your sins and get right with God. No, I need to accept Christ. In fact, I've, I've, I know a lot of people that have rejected the Christian message because they say, you know, I can't live that kind of life. Well, God's not asking you to do anything except accept Christ, accept what he's given to you, and then once you're in Christ, then he will help you clean up your life. And he does want you to clean up your life, but it's not that you're not pleasing to him if you have problems in your life or you still have areas of sin, because the fact is we all have areas of sin. And, and one of the, the lessons that you learn as you mature in, in Christianity is that no matter how clean your life gets, God keeps moving the standard to where it takes less and less to, not to offend him, but you realize that your life narrows down and your behavior narrows down because he expects more out of you. It's the same way that my, my grandson's two years old. He's just now, well, he's starting to exert, exert his will, that terrible twos. And, he, and, and in actuality... He is being rebellious because there's sin in him, and that's the sin nature coming out. 
But on the other hand, he's asking for boundaries. He's wanting to know how far can I go? Well, he has almost no boundaries at two because he's just starting the process. He's just learning. When you get tired and frustrated, you don't smack mama. (laughs) He still does. But he's learning quickly. That's not something he wants to do. Now, if me at 30 or 50 or 65, if I get frustrated, and I'm still not with my mom, but in my marriage, if I get frustrated with I'm tired, I'm cranky, and let's face it, when we get tired, we all get cranky. That's just part of living. When I get tired and cranky, if my wife says something that just, you know, it, it, it ticks me off because I'm not on my game right then, if I smack her, there's a bigger consequence for that than for a two-year-old. I'm at the end of my trail. I ought to know that's not acceptable. And in fact, God pulls me short to the point where now he's, he's looking at me and saying, this it's not just not acceptable that you not smack somebody. It's not acceptable that you even express your displeasure because you know you're tired. Just shut up. I have never failed to say the wrong thing if I shut it up. It's just a simple thing. Well, Paul makes it clear here that it's not salvation that we go after. It's Christ that we go after. We're, we're not saved by belonging to a church. No act, not even taking communion saves us. Not even confessing our sins. And I preach 1 John 1, 9, you know. Uh, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers. We don't get into the kingdom by confessing our sins. We get into, once we're in the kingdom, once we're in Christ, we keep our fellowship with God and keep our lives cleaned up by confessing things. The actual fact is I can't hide anything from God. I mean, he knows everything from the beginning. When I confess, it's not the first time he knows about it. When I confess, it is when I take the power of that sin away from keeping me in fellowship with him and keep it in, in, in deny the, the devil the ability to beat me over the head with that. Now, it is important, don't misunderstand me, it's important that you belong to the right church. I know people that they belong to churches that they, you know, basically their, their theology said, you need to confess Christ, get born again. You're just going to live, you know, like everybody else does. You never know what God will do. And you'll probably die broke, mangled by the world, and then you'll go to heaven. Well, if that's what your church teaches, that's probably what you're going to live. If your church preaches victory and shows you how to, how to um, live in victory, how to live in favor, then at least you have a shot at going after those things. So it's important that you, you're in the right church. It's important that we take communion, commun- but communion is an outward representation of something that's already happened on the inside of us. And confessing our sins is important, but they're only important to people that are already in the family. They're not an entrance to the family. Acts 4, if you want to turn back there from Ephesians, this is where Peter and and John were going into the, the temple 
and the man that was lame from his mother's womb was there, the beggar, and, and they, Peter grabbed his hand and said, in the name of Jesus, arise and be healed. And he was, and the crowds got excited, people got saved, and the rulers uh, and elders of Israel locked them up. And in Acts 4, verse, starting in verse 8, Peter is before this tribunal, and they're going to judge Peter and John for doing this, preaching in the name of Jesus. And it says, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is a stone which was rejected by your builder, by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then verse 12 is the key. Nor is there any salvation, or it, nor is there salvation, excuse me, in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 12 is the key to what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1 7. It's through the name of Jesus. There's no other salvation. And that it's, it's all through accepting the name. And accepting the name, you accept the lordship. Because I've also heard it preached that, you know, you need to accept Jesus as your savior. Technically, that's, that's not bad. But it's, it's a much more complete thing to say we need to accept Jesus as savior and lord. Because some people want to accept Jesus as their Savior, but they're looking for fire insurance. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to surrender their lives. And Jesus demands everything. He, everything that he gave in exchange, he wants everything that we have and everything that we are. Because he gave everything he had and everything he was for us. And he says, to be in me, that's what is required. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, to be saved is to be in Christ, not simply to believe his teaching, but to be in him, to be a sharer of his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension. We have all that, and back in Ephesians 1-7, but we have it through his blood. That redemption that term literally means to be purchased out of a condition of slavery. And this was common in the, in the, the uh, um, Roman world. Slaves were, everybody had slaves. It wasn't a matter of skin color. It was a matter of, of social condition. If you didn't have any money, you'd sell yourself into slavery. At least you've got a job. You have no rights. You, you know, but you're not going to starve to death which I guess life as a slave is better than no life at all. But the, the Greek word there is apolutrosis, and it means to pay a ransom. And there was a, a, a social contract in the Jewish world where if you, uh, and you see it in the story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Naomi was a Jewish widow. Ruth was her daughter-in-law who was a Canaanite. She was not Jewish. But she was married to a Jewish man, and they, they were in um, media, I think. I'm not, I don't remember exactly what country they were, but it was, a, it was a foreign land. 
and Ruth's husband died, both of her sons died, or Naomi's husband died, both of her sons died, and she discharged both of her daughters-in-law, told them, go back, find another husband, I'm going back to Israel. Ruth would not leave her. And when she came back, she put a demand on the Jewish relatives, and it was a demand on the, the concept of a kinsman redeemer. And it was like, you are my closest relative, you need to redeem me out of poverty. And they did. They provided for her and provided for Ruth to the point where Ruth ended up being in the lineage of Jesus. But this word means, it's the same concept as being a kinsman redeemer, but it means that Jesus went in, paid the price, he loosed us from slavery by paying the redemption price, and then he carried that away. He carried our slavery away. And in fact, you can look these up if you want. I'm going to go through them quickly. These are several scriptures that it, it, it talks about what Jesus did when he redeemed us, when he bought us out of slavery. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All of those things he carried us out of slavery and became for us wisdom from God. He also became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not just that we're saved, but he cleaned us up. I like the fact that he forgave my sins, but he also, when he exchanged my sins, he exchanged his righteousness. He made me holy. And I, whether I act holy or not, I am holy. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, he gave himself a ransom for all. The only price he had was himself. He didn't take money out here and say, okay, I'm buying all these people out. He said, I'm going to enter into slavery. It's what it says in the New Testament. He who knew no sin became sin. He entered and became a slave. The, the omniscient uh, God became a slave for a limited period of time to buy us out for all eternity. And then Titus 2.14 also says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I like that. I like being special. And not being special in that I ride the little yellow bus. Special in that God put his mark on me, put his name on me. And then 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold for your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now back in, in Ephesians 1, 7, this could be translated, it's translated, In him we have redemption through his blood. There is an article in the Greek right before redemption. So it could be translated, in him we have the redemption, meaning it's exclusive. But there's two senses of this redemption. One is soteriological and the other one is eschological. Soteriology is the study of, of um, salvation. Soteria is a Greek word for salvation. And in the, the soteriological sense, 
we are saved now since we are in Christ now. It's talking about the benefits of being saved in this life. Right now, present tense, what, can, what is God giving to us? We saw that in, in the latter part of that, of that portion with um, uh, Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. In verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have that inheritance now, and it has benefits now. We're not only forgiven for, from, or forgiven our sins, but we are given his righteousness. We're healed. We're blessed. We're favored. Now, the enemy will try to steal all those things, but we have a right to fight back against him. But we have all of these things in Christ now. Romans 3, uh, verse 21, Paul addresses this. He said in um, verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. In other words, it's through our faith, not through our actions. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, of course, it's Paul. He always goes back to the same themes. We've all sinned, so we all need redemption, but we're justified, we're brought out of that sin freely by his grace through the redemption, through the buying out of slavery that's in Christ. Again, it's not our actions that get us saved. It's being in Christ that gets us saved. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We literally have changed citizenship. Now, for me, changing citizenship, I didn't really have a lot of benefits. I don't know any place in the world I'd rather live and be a citizen than the United States. I mean, I can't think of anything, any place that has better, you know, a better system for all of our problems. You know, I think it was Churchill said, you know, um, democracy is a horrible form of government except for all the rest. We have a lot of problems in the United States. We're not perfect, but we're head and shoulders of most every other place in the world. But when you live some like where like, I mean, let's say you're in, in um, the Sudan, especially if you were a black African living in areas of the Sudan that's controlled by the Arabs. They kill black Africans left and right in Sudan. They have no rights. They, have, they don't have the right to live. Well, if I could convey my citizenship as a Sudanese to become an American, oh, I'd, I'd pay any price. I'd, I'd do anything to swap. Well, that's the kind of conveyance. Even though I'm, a, I'm a, a citizen of this world, and it's not necessarily just the United States, I'm a citizen of the corrupt system in this world. But now I've exchanged that, and I've become a citizen of the kingdom of his son of his love. But verse 14 tells me how. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I've been brought out of darkness and translated into, into light. And then uh, Hebrews 9.12, this actually gets into, and I don't, I don't have time to get into all of it, but 
it tells us in previously in Hebrews and in other places that the tabernacle of Moses was built and designed using the tabernacle or the, the, the throne room of God in heaven as a model. So in, in Hebrews 9.12, it says that we're redeemed not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The most holy place that he entered was the most holy place in heaven. He literally took his blood from the cross, entered into heaven with his physical blood, and placed it on the altar at, in heaven, represented by the, the most holy place in the, the, the temple and in the tabernacle of Moses, where the ark was, where the presence of God was. And he put it on, on the, there, and it cries out for us. It cries out for our redemption. Whether we have accepted that yet or not, it still cries out for our redemption. But then there's also the eschatological use. Eschatology is, is um, the term for the study of end times events. There is a redemption. We've been redeemed from this present evil age. We've been redeemed from sickness, from sin, from poverty, all of those things. But there's a redemption that we haven't received yet. Let me read in 1 Thessalonians. This is one of the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, that I usually will, will preach on when I do funerals. Because it deals with the afterlife and, and what happens when Jesus comes back. This is Paul again talking to the church at Thessalonica. He says, but I don't want you to be ignorant brethren. So he's talking to believers. Concerning those who have fallen asleep... Even Paul falls into this trap, you know, because I've, I've noticed for years, people don't ever want to talk about other people dying. They say, well, they've passed on. Well, they're dead. I mean, and and I, I don't mean to be harsh, but, and there's no, there's really no premium in making people sadder than they are. But we need to realize, and, and it's part of our modern, part of our modern thinking, people don't want to face death. Uh, I have, um, I've known people that they don't want to have funeral services. Uh, I've got um, relatives that they're going to be cremated. They'll have a memorial service, but they don't want to be buried anywhere. They don't want a funeral service. They don't want anybody looking at their bodies in a casket. Part of the reason is they don't want their family to have to face their death. Well, what I've found is, is if people don't face death, they, they have a hard time moving on. Even Paul, I think, fallen in, because when he says he doesn't want us to be ignorant of those that have fallen asleep, he means those that are dead. The reason he doesn't want us ignorant is he said, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. There's always sorrow in losing somebody and having them die because they're not here anymore. doesn't matter that they're going to heaven and you can be certain that they're in heaven they're still not here where you can talk to them, have fellowship with them. And sometimes that hurts. The closer they are, the more it hurts. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We're back to that in Christ thing. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the final redemption, as the redemption of our bodies. Luke 21. This is where Paul, Paul, this is where Jesus is talking about what's going to happen at the very end. During the, either right before the um, tribulation or during the tribulation. In verse 5 and 6, he talks about, he predicts the destruction of the temple, which literally happened in um, um, 70 A.D., and then in verse 7, he starts talking about the signs of the times and the end of the age. And um, he goes through all kinds of, of things that we see in our world today. And we will see quickening. In, in one place, it describes the, the coming of the Lord as, as a woman going into childbirth, having birth pangs. Well, you know that... The very first uh, contraction that a woman has before ch- when she's getting ready to give birth, the very first ones, they don't even, they're not even aware that they're contracting. They're that slight. But they start building, and they start building. And at the very end, they're massive, and they're, they're painful, and they hurt, and that's kind of how the world is. It says, verse 8, he says, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. There have been many instances in the last 2,000 years of people claiming to be Christ. People actually going up on mountaintops and selling all their goods and waiting. You know, even um, the Reverend, what was it, Sun Young Moon, the Moonies, he said, I am Jesus. That that's just happens, and it, and it will happen, continue to happen until he comes back. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and commotions... Don't be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences. There will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings, rulers for my namesake. We're seeing that even more, not so much in the United States. You know, it, it's, it's kind of pitiful. We get upset when people, you know, call us names uh, in our country. But there are Christians all over the world that are being beheaded. They're being tortured for the, for the name of Christ. And it's happening more and more and more. But finally, in, um, he's talking about at the very end, um, verse 20. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are, who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days 
of vengeance and all things which are written may be fulfilled. And then dropping all the way down to um, verse 28, he kind of finishes up. He says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. That redemption is what Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the redemption of our bodies. There is a a passage in in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4 verse 30, he makes a similar statement. Paul does. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Same word he uses back in 1-7, but this is not talking about getting saved. It's talking about the day of redemption. It's talking about the day the Lord returns. And if you go on into Ephesians 5, Paul makes this statement. He's talking about, um, well, let me, let, me finish, let me go to the end and then come back. Verse 32 in Ephesians 5. He says, this is a great mystery. Speaking of marriage, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul is using marriage, the the joining of a man and a woman, to represent the joining of Christ and his church. So if you go back and read section 5, or verse 22 through 31, 22 he talks about wives But then in 24, he says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands. 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Here's why he gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That's what we're going through right now. We're being cleansed and sanctified by the washing of the water by the word. That's why the word is so important. But in verse 27, he says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle nor any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. I've heard that preached, verse 27, for years, that here's the situation. We need to allow God to wash us by the word and sanctify us because Jesus can't come back until we're a glorious church. And we, when we become a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, then he can come and redeem us. And until we get our act together as the church, Jesus can't return. Well, there's only one problem with that. If we're really acting like the church, we're constantly making new converts. And new converts naturally aren't very clean. I mean, I know people that have come out of, you know, drug addiction and they get saved and they're they're saved. They're genuinely saved. They're going to heaven, but they still got a lot of issues in their life. They may still have, you know, they still want to shoot up. They may still drink. They may still smoke. They may still cuss. They may still have rotten attitudes towards people. But God will start cleaning them up and and eventually get them to spiritual maturity. But if we're making converts regularly, the church will always be filled with immature Christians because we will always have new Christians. 
So what I see here, the, the church that, how he's going to present to himself a glorious church is that when that trumpet sounds, when that shout goes out from 1 Thessalonians 4, every Christian on the face of the earth that's alive, mature, immature, even the mature Christ, and I consider myself to be a fairly mature Christian, I've still got spots and wrinkles. But when I hear that shout, when I hear that trumpet, this body that I'm in that's full of sin, that's full of the nature of sin in my flesh, my flesh is going to be transformed instantly. And I will receive a glorified body. That's the redemption he's talking about over in, in, um, in Luke 21. My redemption that draws nigh is the coming of Christ. That's the end time message. When Jesus comes, we're all, all Christians are going to receive glorified bodies. Then we will be without spot, without wrinkle, because nobody in the body of Christ will have spot or wrinkle. We will all be pure and holy on the outside the same way we're pure and holy on the inside. Because as long as I have this flesh body... It's, I'm not going to be completely pure on the outside. My body will want to sin. It will want to have its own way. You know, um, Very few people can do things in everything in moderation, which is what God tells us to do. Do all things in moderation. Let nothing have dominion over you. That's difficult to do for most people. The reason it is, we still have a sin nature in our flesh. <clears throat> but when we get that redeemed body, and that's part of what Paul was talking about in verse 7, we have that redemption through his blood. We have inwardly now, we're completely made clean because his blood cleansed us. At some point in time, I will have a redeemed body. I have the soteriological Redemption now can walk in it, but there's a day coming when I'm going to turn this old one over. I talked to, to Jack this past Sunday, and he hadn't been here for a while because uh, at their, his and Eva's age, they don't drive anymore, and it's hard for them to get to church. And I asked him how he was doing, and he said, well, I'm starting to feel my age. Well, he's 94. At 90, he could probably work me under the table. I mean, it's a wonder. I look at him, I think, it's about time you started feeling your age. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to be in a perfect mid, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure what age, but it'll be at where we were at our prime. At our very best, that's the kind of body we will have. And it, it, it's going to be the same as Jesus' body. It never ages, it never gets sick. It can't even possibly get sick. Sickness can no more attach itself to a redeemed, a redeemed body than it could t attach itself to Jesus today in heaven. He walked through doors. Um, he flew through the air. It says he bodily ascended to heaven. Well, you know, I grew up on Superman and Mighty Mouse, and my dream as a kid was to fly. You know, if I couldn't fly myself, I wanted to fly airplanes. But I really just wanted to fly myself. 
Well, I'm kind of, maybe when I get my redeemed body, that won't be a desire anymore. Maybe that's a fleshly desire. But man, it would be cool to be able to do what birds do. Well, I'm sure it's physically possible with that redeemed body. It's all been paid for by his blood. We have entrance into all of that now through his blood. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.